Thank you for joining us for episode 436 of Live Happy Now. Anxiety is so pervasive today that more than 40 million adults in the U.S. are living with it. But this week's guest is trying to change that. I'm your host, Paula Phelps, and this week I am talking with Dr. Judd Brewer, a New York Times bestselling author and director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. In his 2021 book, Unwinding Anxiety, Dr. Judd shared his scientific insights into how to break the cycle of worry. Now, those steps are also available through an app, and he's here today to tell us how we all can learn to break free from anxiety. Let's have a listen. Dr. Judd, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You have have written, researched, done so much work in the area of anxiety, and this is such a huge, huge problem for people. And to start it off, this has been problematic for generations, and I wondered why we're not getting better at managing it, given the amount of time we've had to learn about it. This is way before neuroscience was even a field. You know, neuroscience is a very young field, a, a field of study. Uh, it was even, wasn't even coined until like the 1970s. But if you think about this approach to changing human behavior and and working with ourselves, it's it's about, you know, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I could think I can think my way out of anxiety. And so that's been a dominant paradigm for a long time. Even I love one of my favorite comedy skits is from the 1970s. This guy, I don't know if you remember Bob Newhart. Oh, I loved him. Yeah. I loved yeah. Bob Newhart. So he had a skit called Stop It. <laughs> Basically, where this person, this woman comes into his, you know, he's playing a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Woman comes into his office and says, you know, I have this fear, you know, talks about this fear. I won't give away the skit. And then, you know, he basically just says, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) But he's highlighting what has been this dominant paradigm, you know, back in the 60s, 70s with cognitive behavioral therapy, still present to today as the dominant thing is, you know, just control yourself, just stop it. Mm -hmm. And and if only that worked, if we could find that switch in our brain that we could just flip off that anxiety switch or that worry switch or that overeating switch or that whatever switch, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Right. You know, it's like growing up, my mom would be like, well, just calm down. It's like, that is what I'm trying to do. Literally, (laughs) I'm trying to calm down and I can't. Yeah. And And the more somebody tells us to calm down, the more anxious we get. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then we feel like we're doing something wrong. Like, why can't I get this under control? And is that part of it, too? We felt like we have to do it ourselves. I think that's a lot of it, you know, where it's, it's just like, well, What's wrong with you if you can't control your anxiety? So we also get into loops of self-judgment and unworthiness and guilt and shame and all that stuff. So is it more prevalent or are we just hearing more about it? Are we more willing to talk about it? Because it seems it's everywhere I turn, I hear conversations about it. I see reading materials about it. And so I don't know if we're just more comfortable with talking about it or it really is a bigger problem. It's hard to know whether something's increasing, decreasing, or staying the same if you haven't measured it. And so I don't think it's been measured historically as much as it's been measured today. So what I can say is we do know some of the factors that contribute to anxiety more, and we can certainly say those factors are pretty prevalent. So for example, our brains don't like uncertainty. And that's actually a built-in mechanism to help us survive. If we hear some rustling in the bushes, you know, think of our ancient ancestors 
you can't just ignore that and be like, yeah, whatever. I'm going back it's to probably sleep. Just a tiger. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. It pet tiger, pet tiger, not the, not the dangerous <laughs> non-pet tiger. Right. So yeah, just a tiger, no big deal. So our brains are set up for survival in that way. And in modern day, we've never had so much access to information. Right. And so it's like, our brains are like, oh, more information, good, but you can't drink from the fire hose. And on top of that, there's a lot of unintentional misinformation and then intentional disinformation. And so back in the day with our, you know, of our ancient ancestors, there was no such thing as the deep fake tiger or the whatever, the intentionally misleading tiger. It was like tiger or no tiger. And so right. now we have to become the expert on everything. When we hear something, we're like, well, is that true or not? And then so our brains start to get go into overload because not only is there a ton of information, but we don't know what to trust, what not to trust, and we're not the experts. Right. So I would say that certainly wasn't available back before the internet. For example, the internet's really made information much more available and also mis and disinformation as well. So that's one piece in modern day that that historically hasn't been there that is certainly contributing. And we don't get that time away from it. We used to have like you walked away from your life a little bit, your work life, whatever it was, and you had your evening, you could kind of decompress. That doesn't happen now. So what's that doing to give us this heightened always on circuit in our brain? Yeah, well, there's a it's now coined the FOMO, fear of missing out. And that fear of missing out is not just social. And so that can start in someone's teenage years or even probably earlier. But also in adulthood, it's not only the social FOMO, but also the work FOMO. So it's like, oh, I could be checking my email to see if I'm missing an email. I could be, I could be doing this or that. Or somebody can always get a, a hold of us via text and say, hey, call me immediately when there used to be work-life boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I read an article in the New York Times this past week, and it said that texting is starting to invade our texting from work is starting to invade our personal space. I'm like, that's just starting like starting. I was going to say what? I, that's been going on for a little while there, NYT. <laughs> <laughs> so it is it's it's absolutely overloading. And what is it doing to the brains of kids who are growing up in this kind of always on environment? Yeah, that's a good question. We now have a generation of digital natives, which means children that were born and don't know what it's like not to have smartphones, not to have social media, not to have the internet. And it is an uncontrolled experiment. <laughs> On your children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that you didn't sign a consent form for. <laughs> <laughs> and you're probably not going to like the outcome. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's going to be it will be interesting to see. And will the way that anxiety is addressed with that generation be different than, say, someone like myself who had who actually saw the screens go off like at 2 a.m. when they're babysitting and there's no more TV for hours? It's a good question. My hypothesis and happy to be wrong here, but my hypothesis is that you regardless of whether we're you know a digital native or not, you treat it the same way. And part of that is that our brains are so adaptable that we can certainly remember what it was like to not have a cell phone or not have email or not have the internet. But it just feels like ancient history because that's not what's happening right now. And so, you know, whether we were born before or after, it doesn't really matter because what we're dealing with is the present moment, like what what's happening right now. 
That makes perfect sense. And you have done so much research in in a lot of areas, but we want to talk about specifically what you've done with anxiety. And I'm interested in learning what made you start researching anxiety. Basically, I was really anxious at the end of college to the point, and I didn't know it to the point where my body had to give me some very clear signals through, you know, I developed irritable bowel syndrome. And one of the big drivers for some people of, of irritable bowel syndrome is, is anxiety and stress. And so my guts were letting me know, Hey, pay attention. You know, this is, this is not good. And also, you know, fast forward eight years later, when, after I'd finished my MD PhD program, I started getting panic attacks during residency. So those were kind of precursors for my personal experience with this. And then interestingly, I, you know, my lab, so I had started studying mindfulness training when I started my career as an assistant professor, because I was really interested in how people can change addictive behaviors and habits. And as a psychiatrist was really seeing the limitations in current treatments for addictions. And so really wanted to put contribute there. I felt like people with addictions were my people and so really wanted to, to help there. And so it started developing these programs. Like I developed a program for smoking. We actually got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. So I was oh, that's thinking, amazing. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking, wow, this is this works pretty well. And then we developed, we even developed an app for eating called Eat Right Now. And the study led by Ashley Mason at UCSF found a 40% reduction in craving related eating. And that's even gone. So we're like, wow, that's pretty good. And that program is now actually CDC recognized as a diabetes prevention program. The first one that's based solely on mindfulness as a way to change it. And I would say mindfulness, we can talk about this in a bit, but mindfulness really targets some of these neural mechanisms, which, which other programs don't. But somebody in our eating program said to me, hey, anxiety is actually triggering me to stress eat. Can you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, well, I'm a psychiatrist. Or I prescribe medications. But I was realizing if you look at the data, there's this scientific term called the number needed to treat, which basically gives you a rough and dirty of how many people actually benefit from a treatment. And that number is 5.2, which means one in five people (laughs) benefit from the best medications we have out there. So I was basically playing the medication lottery when treating my patients with anxiety. One in five, didn't know which one of the next five was going to benefit. And I didn't know what to do with the other four. So I was getting anxious about how to treat my patients with anxiety. So so that question that somebody had asked me from our Eat Right Now program, you know, can you create a program for anxiety was kind of burning a hole in my ear. And I started, so I went back as a, as a scientist and looked at the literature and somebody back in the 1980s, ironically, back when Prozac was introduced as the first SSR that's supposed to help anxiety, you, they had largely ignored the psychological research where this guy, Thomas Borkovic, had suggested that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And when I read that, I was like, anxiety, habit? I research habits. I never thought of anxiety as a habit. I was like, mind blown. So I developed this unwinding anxiety program and as a researcher, you know, wanted to study to see how well it worked. So we started, get this, we started, I was like, who's, what's the hardest population for us to work with? Oh yeah. Physicians, you know, like we're a pain (laughs) in the ass. We don't take care of ourselves. We learn to armor up. We learn to be martyrs because if we're focusing on ourselves, we could be, you know, we could be saving patients' lives, you know, and so don't waste our time on ourselves. Of course, that's why we get burnt out. So we did our first study with anxious physicians and we got this whopping 57% reduction in anxiety. We also got burnout, but I was like, wow, okay, this, this might have some legs to it. So we got some funding from the NIH. 
and did a randomized controlled trial in people with generalized anxiety disorder, like the, the worst of the worst. They wake up anxious, they feel anxious all day, and then they have trouble sleeping because they're anxious, <laughs> you know, rinse and repeat. Really, really challenging condition. Here we got a, ready for this, 67% reduction in anxiety. Yeah. And the number needed to treat there, remember with medications, it's 5.2. The number needed to treat here is 1.6, the smaller number. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're like, wow, this is pretty good. And we went on to work out the mechanism. We did more studies showing that you could even improve sleep by treating anxiety, all this stuff. So all of that is to say, Borkovec's conjecture, his hypothesis that you could treat anxiety as a habit was just so important. And here we are able to test that hypothesis you know, in a way that's accessible for, for anybody with a smartphone. And here we're getting gangbuster results. It's really exciting to see that the theory lines up with the practice and also that the practice can be very pragmatic. You know, we set these programs up to be 10 minutes a day for people to incorporate them into their busy lives. And importantly, you know, what we're seeing from the data is that it's really helpful for people to reduce their anxiety. And there's so many aspects to anxiety. And one thing is being able to access that help when you need it. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the tools that you teach people? We'll get to your app in just a moment. But what are some of the tools that you teach people to use so that when anxiety hits, they can start managing it then? Yeah, I go into the, all, all the details in the Unwinding Anxiety book, but people don't need to read my book to get this. I think of it as a three-step process where the first step is to map out our anxiety habit loops. Now, I didn't even know, as I mentioned, I didn't know that anxiety could be triggered like a habit. So the first thing for anybody to know is that anxiety can be a habit. And the way that works is you need three elements to form a habit. You needed a trigger or a cue and a behavior is the second step. And then a result or a reward from a neuroscience standpoint is the third. And the way that works is that the feeling of anxiety can trigger the mental behavior of worrying. Yeah, mental behaviors count just as much as physical behaviors, right? And then that mental behavior of worrying makes us feel like we're in control or at least doing something, right? Because it's better oh, to worry than not to worry. I think most of us don't even think of worrying as a form of control. Again, it's just a habit. It's just, it's what I do. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's that's accurate because worrying doesn't actually give us control. But the research has shown that for enough people, it makes them feel like they're in control or it distracts them from the feeling of anxiety that it's rewarding enough, at least initially, for it to feedback so that the next time somebody feels anxious, they worry. And then like you point out, it quickly becomes a habit. Interesting. So, so you've got these three steps and then how do they... How does that equate into being able to handle them? Yeah, yeah. So the, that first step, we've talked about the first step is just mapping out these habit loops. So being able to identify what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result. And we can actually even simplify that to just what's the behavior. And it tends to be worrying, like you're highlighting. But sometimes it can be distracting ourselves with social media, stress eating, emotional eating, drinking alcohol, things like that. Second step is where we really lean into the neuroscience. And the way that works is our brains are going to keep doing a behavior if it's rewarding, and they're going to stop doing that behavior if it's not rewarding. If we're not paying attention and we don't see how rewarding or unrewarding a behavior is, we're going to just keep doing it. We actually did a study with our Eat Right Now program to have people where we had people specifically pay attention to what it feels like when they overeat. It only takes 10 or 15 times for somebody to overeat. 
and pay attention to see that that reward value is not rewarding. And that reward value drops below zero in their brain and they start to shift that behavior. So it doesn't take a lot of time. It doesn't take any effort. Notice how none of this requires willpower. This is really all about awareness, paying attention in the present moment. So feeling of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying. If we don't pay attention to how rewarding or unrewarding worrying is, we're going to keep doing it because we're going to think, oh, this is just what I do, like you pointed out. If we start to ask the question, what am I getting from worrying? And we really feel into our direct experience, we start to see something pretty clearly. Worrying makes me more anxious, right? It doesn't solve my problems. It doesn't help me predict the future. All it does is make me feel more anxious. And that gives us a negative prediction error where our brain says, hey, you know, is this worrying thing really working for you? (laughs) No, no, it's not. It's not. Pay attention. And then we start to become disenchanted with the worrying. That's step two. That step applies to any habit. When my patients come in and want to quit smoking, what do I have them do? Pay attention as they smoke. They come back at a guy who'd been smoking 40 years, right? And we calculate the number of times he had reinforced this process. Ready for this? It was like 293,000 times. Oh my gosh. And he hadn't been paying attention. So I said, just set up a follow-up appointment and told him to go home and smoke and pay attention. He comes back and he's like, how did I not notice that before? (laughs) Right? Cigarettes taste like crap. So it's much easier to quit smoking when you really see, feel, taste, smell what cigarettes are like. That's amazing. Yeah. Because you can't, I can see how that works with any habit. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, smoking, overeating, anxiety, you know, all these things. Self-judgment, big one in, in Western society. You know, we're really good at beating ourselves up. We can start to ask, what do I get from this? Right. So that's the second step. Third step is actually leveraging that same process. So if our brain is gonna only do things that are rewarding and they start to become disenchanted with these other behaviors, our brains are gonna look for something better. Spoiler alert, it's not social media. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it, I got my answer wrong. (laughs) Yeah, just scrolling on our social media feeds or checking our email, it might scratch that itch, but it just makes it itchier. It's like poison ivy. (laughs) So we need to find things that are intrinsically rewarding that help us step out of these old habit loops. The good news is they're already there. We already have them. We just need to dust them off and use them a little bit more. Two main flavors here. One is curiosity. The other is kindness. Let's see how we can apply both of them. So if we have anxiety and we start worrying, we can worry, which tends to come into the mental flavor of, oh no, you know, this is happening or what will this happen or what's going to happen? We can flip that to, oh, that, oh, awakens our curiosity. And we go, oh, what does this anxiety feel like in my body? And we can even ask questions like, is it more on the right side or the left side, front or back? doesn't really matter what the answer is, but that awakens our curiosity. You're like, huh, where is this? What does it feel like? And when we go looking for the anxiety, it starts running away because what we start to notice is that these physical sensations are constantly changing. And mm-hmm. if we're not feeding them by worrying, they tend to go away on their own. They might not go away instantly, but we can start to see, oh, these are physical sensations. They might be unpleasant but I can tolerate this. That curiosity helps us work with them. There's this saying attributed to Marcus Aurelius, who is a Roman emperor and a a Stoic. And he says, what stands in the way becomes the way. I love that because we can think of anxiety as a problem, 
or we can think of it as an opportunity to learn. Oh, this is what unpleasant sensations feel like. And that curiosity helps us develop that distress tolerance. Instead of running to our phone to distract ourselves, we can turn toward this experience. And by turning toward it, you know, it's like the rats that scatter when you turn on the lights, right? It's not as powerful as, as we thought it was. So that's how curiosity can help. I think of it as flipping that, oh no, whether it's a craving or worrying or whatever to, oh, you know, awakening that curiosity. The other flavor that I talked about was kindness. And that can be very helpful when we're judging ourselves. So we can compare judging ourselves, what do I get from this, to kindness, what do I get from this? No brainer, right? Which one feels better in the body? Being kind to ourselves, <laughs> yeah, right? So here, this third step helps us step out of the old habit loop of judging ourselves by stepping into the new behavior of being kind to ourselves. And then because that is more rewarding, it becomes the new habit. Same for curiosity. Helps us step out of the old worrying habit loop and into the new habit of being curious. Those are such incredible techniques. And obviously, they take practice. It takes one remembering to do them when it strikes, which might be the hardest part of it. It, once anxiety kicks in, it kind of feels like just, you know, grab your hat and hold the hell on. And you don't really have the chance to to do anything. But if you have a plan and you know, next time I feel anxious, this is what I'm going to do, then you can start changing it. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, if you're flying in an airplane, lots of people are afraid, you know, have fear of flying in an airplane. Talk about lack of control. So the <laughs> pilot comes on and she says, Tension, there's going to be some turbulence. Buckle up. We can go, oh no, turbulence. Or we can go, oh no, here we go. You know, <laughs> am I going to be YouTube famous? Hey. <laughs> yeah, we have no control over that turbulence, but we certainly have control over how we respond to it. That's terrific. And with your book, Unwinding Anxiety, it was widely acclaimed. It has helped so many people get through it. And that led to creating an app of the same name, which we're going to let our listeners try out for a, a month for free. But talk about how the app allows them to implement these principles and, and kind of how that works for them. So the app is set up as a, we have these core trainings where it's 10 minutes a day 30 for 30 days to help people get the core understanding of how their mind works and how to work with their mind. So it's about 10 minutes a day, videos, animations, that kind of teach a concept and then importantly, have people start to put it into practice that day. Okay. So that's the psychoeducational component. The other components are we've got in the moment exercises. So when somebody feels anxious, they can buckle up and we've got some great practices to help people ground, help people get back into the moment so we can get their brains back online and working. And the other piece is through those 30 core modules, it walks them through these this three-step process. We use the analogy of gears, like driving a car. You know, you shift into first gear, second gear, third gear. On top of that, there are a bunch of theme weeks that help solidify the core concepts. And then also, and this is actually one of the favorite parts of my week, every week I run a live group through Zoom at noon Eastern time on Wednesdays for anybody to join and ask a question so we can actually go through what they, they might be struggling with live. And so there, you know, we can reiterate the concepts of the three gears, and then we can see where somebody might be struggling to shift into one of the gears. And then usually in five to 10 minutes, kind of identify that and have them through an exploration process together, 
have them see where they, they might already have it and they just don't think they do or give them a couple of things to play with and then let us know how it goes. So those are the the key elements. We also have a very active online community where we now over the years have developed this very large crowdsourced knowledge base where people ask questions, I answer the questions. And then over the years, people, there's basically a, a very rich library of answered questions because 80 or 90% of the questions that people have are the same and they've already been answered. And that's terrific too, because just knowing you're not alone in your anxiety journey can be absolutely huge. And having someone else say, I felt the exact same way and here's what I did, instead of going like, dude, that sucks. I'm really sorry. (laughs) Sucks to be you. (laughs) Exactly. Ah, so glad I didn't get that. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's so helpful. That community approach is really incredible. It is. Community is everything. So all the work that you've done in this space and you're continuing to do more, what is it that you really want everyone to know about anxiety and to like really hope this accomplishes in the long run? Well, I would say the most important thing is for people to know it's not their fault, right? They think there's something wrong with them. They're broken. They can't be fixed. Well, there's nothing wrong with them. This is just their survival brains that have gone a little off track and they can actually get them back on track in a relatively simple way, right? It's not magic. It's not to say, you know, one and done, but it's also not to say, well, you've been anxious for 30 years. It's going to take another 30 years to help you become unanxious. That's the good news. And I've had plenty of patients, et cetera, success stories where people come in 30 years of generalized anxiety disorder, full-blown panic attacks. And within six months, they're like, wow, I don't know what to do with all this extra time now that I'm not worrying. (laughs) I love that. How freeing is that? I'm like, okay, great opportunity to go help the world. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. This is such an important conversation to have. And the work that you're doing is so incredible. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today and talk about it. I'm really eager to share your work with our listeners because I I don't want to say I think they will. I I know that people will get so much out of this. So I appreciate you coming on today. Well, I really appreciate you having me. This has been a great conversation. That was Dr. Judd Brewer talking about unwinding anxiety. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Judd or follow him on social media, just visit us at livehappy.com and click on the podcast tab. And while you're on this episode's landing page, be sure to check out our anxiety links and resources, including a one-month free trial of the Unwinding Anxiety app. That is all we have time for today. We'll meet you back here again next week for an all-new episode. And until then, this is Paula Phelps reminding you to make every day a happy one.